Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, hello, and welcome to the 35th Godpod, which is quite impressive, we like to think. Um, and uh, you'll notice that I'm not Graham Tomlin. Uh, I'm not very good at impersonating him, so I'm doing my own voice. This is Michael Lloyd. Uh, but we have um, our, one of our usual uh, contributors, Jane Williams, who's uh, with us again today. With a horrible snuffly cold, I'm afraid. So disgusting noises in the background are supplied by me. But, but you can't catch it off an iPod, down no. an iPod, so that's encouraging. <laughs> um, and we also have with us today our other colleague, who I don't think um, you've met yet, if you're just a, a listener, um, and that is Andy Emerton. Andy, welcome. welcome. Thank it's, you. It's really good to have you. You uh, Tell us what you do, because you've just started doing it. Well, you? it's um, lovely to be here, lovely to be with the eminent the- theologians uh, around our, our little gathering here. Um, I have just recently taken over um, helping to head up uh, St. Paul's Theological Centre, which is our training college here. So you've just become our boss, really? I am actually in charge of these lovely people. Would you like another biscuit? Uh, I would love lots of biscuits, Michael. Um, I'm not sure whether they really believe that I'm actually in charge of them uh, most of the time. Oh, oh, are you suggesting we're, you know, insubordinate? Is that what you're suggesting? I believe you're totally in charge of all admin and details of every description. (laughs) Jane, you're very sweet. Not only with his degree in theology, but also with a PhD in something unpronounceable. Something unpronounceable. Um, I've got a PhD in uh, theoretical physics. Um, so messing around with numbers and computers and all such lovely things like that. Are you that. a quantum mechanic? I am do, not do you actually go with a, a very quantum small mechanic. <laughs> um, but um, it's been very useful in terms of uh, things like progr- doing our timetabling and trying to work out what we can teach where. Yeah, and I've really useful stuff. Been like amazed that, that um, all my sort of mathematical uh, learning has finally. Um, found um, an outlet within the world of theology and we are delighted basi- basically so. organizing these guys lives the lord wastes nothing it's <laughs> <laughs> and um now we have we, people have been emailing in thank you very much for your emails and um andy you've got one i have um, which is a complaint about me isn't it, it is they, <laughs> apparently you made off you make offhand comments Mike, I, I which i can't believe no, I but um you made an offhand comment to something to the effect uh, of soul uh, regarding souls and spirits Yes, and um, you, you particularly made the point in one of our previous God pods that uh, you're not sure about whether Scripture really supports the idea of an eternal soul. No, that's right. I, I, I'm tempted to think, and this is work in progress, so I'm not entirely confident, but that never stops me. Um, to, to think that the, the idea of a distinction between a, a soul and a body, a particularly a separable soul and body, it actually comes from Greek philosophy rather than from the Bible. Mm. It's Plato thought that um, souls are things that we have inside us. Um, the soul is the good bit, the body is the bad bit, um, and thankfully at death we get released from um, from the bad bit and we can be free at last and, and go and live with a disembodied God in a disembodied heaven. Um, and 
but actually, I think that that's not a biblical idea. I think it's the Gnostic Gospels have that sort of thing. I mean, the Gospel yeah. of Judas has Jesus wanting to be uh, to, to be killed so he could be released from his body, uh, and Judas is the one person who understands that and therefore betrays him. And Jesus is delighted with that and thinks Judas is uh, the top disciple, and all the others were a bit silly. Um, I don't think Scripture. It, it, has this kind of idea of a separable soul and body. Mm. Um, it, it's probably, the problem is that we read the word soul, when we come across it, we think, ah, we know what the soul is because we've read Plato. We haven't, but we think we have. Um, we've been affected by it. Uh, but in fact, you know, when Mary says, my soul doth magnify the Lord, mm. um, doesn't mean the larynx isn't involved. Um, there are lots of ways you can interpret the word or int- translate the word soul. Mm. Uh, for instance, it often just means self, myself. Um, my soul is weary of life. It means I, I am weary of life in, my deep, in the depths of my being. Um, uh, you get, sometimes it means heart. Him whom my soul loveth means whom, the person that my, my heart loves. Um, sometimes it means, can mean physical appetite. Uh, in numbers it says our soul is dried away by which they mean we've lost our appetites Uh, and uh, sometimes it means neck or throat Uh, the waters have come up unto my soul means they've come up to my neck I'm about to drown Um, and there are various places where it seems to me that it can't mean something separate from the body uh, there's a bit in, in Genesis where it said, his soul clave unto Dinah. Well, that presumably includes the physical bits. Um, so that's why <laughs> I'm I'm uh, tempted to say that the Bible doesn't teach that. And I think it matters because if we think the soul is the most important bit, we won't treat bodies with the importance that they deserve as, as part of God's good creation. It also makes it much harder to understand the resurrection, doesn't it? I mean, I am... Um Having initially been very uncertain about your line on this, Mike, I'm coming around to it more and more. Um, Good. (laughs) Partly, I mean, I think part of the problem is that all the Christian fathers of the first few centuries utterly um, went with the Greek philosophical line, didn't they? So people like Augustine and so on simply assumed there was a separable soul and body. Mm. Um, Though Augustine, in view of his Christian conversion, wanted to to say something about how they were much more closely bonded um, than in any of the philosophy that he grew up with. Um, but particularly reading something like um, Tom Wright's book on the resurrection, it, it actually makes you realise it's one of the things that Christianity does that is so unusual, um, that this this assumption that, that uh, of valuing the body, that the whole person is what will be taken into the new creation, mm. not a, a bit that is that is released from the from the dreadful muck of of, of creation, yes. but that creation itself is good and our bodiliness yeah. is part of that yeah. goodness. Yeah. And I, and I suppose the, one of the implications of that is, it, as you say, Mike, it really does matter um, what I do with my body and how I see myself and how I see myself as a whole, physical what, and spiritual. What I do with my body and what we do with our environment, the, the rest of the physical universe, the whole thing matters. Mm-hmm. After all, uh, resurrection is what God is going to do with mm-hmm. us, um, but remaking is what he's going to do with the cosmos. It's not leaving it all behind dumping it in a trash can and starting again with something disembodied, in which case, why would he have bothered making it physical in the first place? Now, how, much, how much do we think that's that process of regeneration, but sort of bodies, our physicality, our, our experience of life, um, creation, how much of that is, can we trust is happening now? 
how much is it just creation is groaning eager expectation for something that's that's going to happen in the future uh i i think obviously recreation uh in such a way as to be free from that which currently constrains and mars and destroys us decay as paul mm. calls it mm. um is, is something in the future we're still subject to decay at yeah. the moment um and uh upon upon that fact is the multi-million billion dollar uh, cosmetics industry based <laughs> of course um, say nothing of the slimming industry <laughs> nothing of the slimming industry you know mike you always do look very beautiful you obviously go to town on your cosmetics <laughs> well, well i have a radio a radio face i think which is why it shines God, God it shines pass. thank you very much i'm not sure it shines over the ipods but there we go um but it doesn't does mean that taking our bodies seriously is is part of our calling christian vocation and and the church at its best has always realized that mm. um hence the hospital movement mm. hence the hospice movement um mm. taking the physical needs of others seriously mm. well it's part of the teaching of jesus and it's been part of the mission of the yeah. church yeah I, I used to work with um some of you well now i used to work with teenagers um used to be involved with youth work and i think that this sort of teaching was revolutionary yeah. Um, mm. for, for teenagers, particularly in all the pressure on how they use their bodies and how they approach their yeah. bodies, how they deal with it. So I think I think some of this teaching um, is, is really helpful, actually, for young people in particular, given all the pressures that culture it's um, it, it, It's a them. real balance, isn't it? Because p- part of what teenagers need to know as well, on the other end of the spectrum, is yes, their bodies matter, but they're, they're, they're important, but they're not all important. And yeah. how you look <laughs> is yes. important and it's to be fostered, but it's... It's not all important. So, mm. so the soul language is a way of saying there are other dimensions to us than purely yeah. physical, yeah. Uh, than just our appearances. Uh, and there are depths to us and dimensions to who we are beyond the physical. And those matter too. Um, I tend to think that uh, words like, uh, you know, we are emotional beings, we are souls, we are bodies, we are intellects, we are all sorts of different things. And these all look at the same unified person from a whole lot of different angles. Mm. Uh, and those are all important angles to bear in mind yeah. and to, re- to take account mm. of when we're understanding mm. the richness of what it is to be human. Mm. And God's wanting to transform every part of every, every, every one of those of angles. Yes. Yeah. Every bit of that to be remade in the image of Christ. But I thought also involved in what you were asking earlier, Andy, was um, the question about how we cooperate with God's transforming of creation. Yes. It, it was how, how much can we expect yeah. to be changed? How much should we really work at us be, uh, as being changed? Yes. How much is just going to happen and as I, God I, works in us? And again, I think that's one we have to, to balance things out, don't you? Because there are strands within Christianity that have assumed that now it's up to us. We have to do everything, um, which, which um, lay huge burdens of guilt um, on us to, to, to make the world better. Mm. Um, on the assumption that we know how it should be, which clearly we don't quite. The only bit of the world that we've seen that is how it should be is Jesus. Yes. Um, uh, and so we're not in a, a brilliant position to, to do God's work utterly for him without further consultation. But, <laughs> but equally, um, there's a strand of Christian theology that says, right, well, it's all up to God. Then we'll just sit, sit back on our hands yes. and let be and let God. Um, and and that again, you need some kind of balance between those two things, don't you, about mm-hmm. our, our, our cooperation with God while God remains sovereign and responsible. Uh, isn't there a helpful verse in Philippians? There are lots of helpful S- verses in Philippians. In I Philippians. think you'll find. I'm sorry you only together. think there's one, Andy. <laughs> well, I'm clearly lacking in my um, understanding of Philippians. The um, the verse I was thinking about was oh, the, yes. see whether you agree, Mike, um, was the um, 
verse about uh, working out, continuing to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's the next bit, for it is God who works in you yes. to will and to act according to his good purpose, whether that has something of that balance. I think, I think it has exactly that balance, and it, it's God wants to rule the word, world through us. He, mm. he wants to work through partnership. There's all sorts of things that he presumably could do by himself but chooses not to because he wants the whole point of the operation is that he uses us works through us uh, he doesn't magic food into existence he uses that which he's given by andrew or the lad who um, andrew got the food off yeah um and but he then uses it out of all proportion proportion to what it is in itself the little lad's lunch packed lunch would not in itself have done much to assuage the hunger of 5,000 people. Mm. And it's the same kind of balance here, I think. So it's why in good sacramental theology, the the place where you see the transformed creation is at the Eucharist. Yes. Where you see physical elements um, transforming bodies, where you see a a diverse group of people made into the body of Christ, where you see creation worshipping the creator. Um, And and I've, I've always found that an extraordinarily powerful Yes. image that there is actually one point in all of our <coughs> created lives where we can for a moment be part of the kingdom of yes. God. I think yes. the sacraments are a very good underlining of, of the point that we've been trying, trying to make here which is the real importance of the physical. Yes. Um, you know, God uses water, he uses wine, he uses bread, mm. ordinary everyday stuff mm. um, and uses them in an extraordinary way so that they become vehicles of his life and his being. And of course we're told that uh, you know, the prophets tell us that in the future the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God and the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The whole created <laughs> order is going to be drenched yes. with the presence yes. mm-hmm. uh, of God. And, and the splendor of mm-hmm. God. We've, we've actually got another question that picks up elements to do with um, bodiliness. And it's an interesting question um, from uh, somebody in Colorado, actually. Um, who says, I've more than once heard speakers exclaim that Christianity is really living in Africa and Asia in contrast with Europe and America. Um, Besides the obvious hubris of characterizing the entire church of a continent, I wonder if you could speak to the very recent history of the church in the first world and the church in the developing world. I think we often fall into the cliche of thinking the first world is economically developed and spiritually bankrupt, while the developing world is often in the opposite position. But to my mind, this grows more out of a Gnostic heresy that suggests the body and the textures of life are unimportant and spiritual development may be obstructed by abundance. So what do we think about that? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What do the developing countries have to teach Europe and North America and vice versa? Mm-hmm. Well, I've certainly always thought it's an interesting question. I, I've always sort of imagined myself being spiritually more alive if I uh, was in do- deepest Africa um, really? without all the things I sort of rely on um, around me. If those things were perhaps stripped away, whether that would help me to be so. Why don't you go to fully darkest engaged? Africa, well, my Not wife. What we want you to go. My, well, then. thanks very kindly. My wife would love us to go to Africa if she's <laughs> listening to this. Um, she she did a year out in Zambia um, right. uh, as a teacher, and uh, she she loves the uh, I guess the sort of um, I think what she describes as the freedom. That, that Africans in particular seem to have in their I- engagement with, with God and with life, with um, creation, um, with each other, with community. And, and I think one thing she would probably say is that the time richness, that nothing seems to be hurried, nothing seems to be... Uh, and I tend to find I'm always under time pressure in yeah. my life, and yeah. that's you as well. And, and sometimes that 
sort of presses in on my spiritual vitality. Mm. Um, so I think it's a great question. Yeah, I think it is, yes. I think, I d- I think it's very, very important not to glorify poverty. Yes. Um, you know, it's, yes. It's, it's not an ennobling and wonderful thing. It's mm. crushing um, and it stops people from living fully. Um, and it's important to remember that. That's not to say that there aren't other facets of life in um, the third world which are superior to uh, much of what we do here. I think business tends to drive out community, for instance. Yes. Uh, and, and I think there's a, there probably is a greater sense of community mm. in some parts of the world where they're more time-rich. I think business drives out community, but I think possessions do too mm-hmm. I, I think once you, you you can sort of surround yourself with the things that you think you need um, and increasingly get um, so that you have to have gated communities you have to have alarms yes. you have to have yes. things that keep you away from people who might want what you've got yes and which you don't want to risk losing um, and I think that there is that that whole aspect of, I mean, of, of wealth. Uh, if poverty is very bad for you, there's a, a strong strand in the gospel that suggests that wealth is also very bad for you. That yes. wealth becomes the thing that you think you need in order to be a human being. And there's that bit in Proverbs which I haven't been able to find uh, as, <laughs> as I've been flipping through while you've been Mike's speaking. been trying to find this, find yes. this bit in Proverbs but for the whole of there. the last Tr- 15 trust, minutes trust me I'm a priest uh, <laughs> there's a bit, a bit that says uh, do not give me poverty lest I'm tempted to steal but do not give me riches uh, lest my heart grows cold and I wander away from you and I think that it's that kind of balance really there are dangers uh, in, in both extremes mm-hmm. um and we need, we are of course much more prone to the latter, much more prone to letting the desire for material advancement smother other aspects and dimensions of who we are. That's our uh, risk. And, and because there are people who are being big crushed by poverty, we could actually usefully shift some of our burdens their yes, way. Yes. <laughs> I was very struck when we visited the Gambia talking to a government official who said, that she hoped and prayed that they would never find mineral wealth of any description in the Gambia because mm. she looked at the neighbouring countries like Liberia yes, um, uh, with enormous um, richness in, in, the, in the ground uh, and that immediately made them a target for um, multinationals and, and, and local people wanting to make their money out of it and, and, and all of those countries where there, have, there, have been found, there has been found that kind of wealth have had years and years of civil war mm. so I, I thought that was a really intriguing thing for somebody um, struggling to you know feed t- her country as it were to say that she would still rather not have that yes. kind yeah. of to see economic wealth. development as a danger potentially well, uh, whereas obviously there can economic, be yes. positives as well yeah and of course there can be environmental damage to yeah. mining and all that sort yeah. of thing as well but Jane you've traveled quite a lot in the, the kind of third world and seen the church there. What's your experience of the connection between underdevelopment economically and uh, and the state of the church? Um, I think it's just terribly tempting always to romanticise mm. something that you're not, that is not your own daily experience. Mm. Yes. Um, and I think for a lot of us to, to visit um, Christians in other parts of the world, it's the most wonderful blessing to see how it's possible to be a Christian under all circumstances. Mm. Um, but as a matter of fact, it isn't easier to be a Christian 
uh, in poverty in Africa um, than it is here. There, there may be less um, cultural pressure against it um, than, than we have in this country, but, uh, but actually it's incredibly easy to be a Christian in Britain. It's just that most people don't think they need it. And, I, and I, so I think the challenge of visiting Christians in other parts of the world is to come back and think, how am I going to, to grow the Christian church here where I actually am? What are the, the issues that make it harder for us to be Christians here? Um, what are, so rather than comparing ourselves with Christians in other parts of the world, is to, is to learn this lesson that, that God is available um, to be our God wherever yes. we are. Yes. Um, I, I think I'm, I want to disagree with Andy that there's only one useful verse in Philippians and, <laughs> and, and su- suggests another one, which is where Paul talks about, you know, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, yeah. yes. um, whether in wealth or in poverty. Mm. It's a, and, th- and that's a real art, to be able to remain faithful when things are really grim and you're in huge need, or indeed when the, you're in plenty and you don't need to... At one level, you don't seem to need to turn to God mm. for help. Uh, to remain faithful in the, both those situations um, is is quite a knack. I mean, that's genuine mm. humanness, isn't it? And that's that's going back to the question originally. I guess that's where both we can learn the the good from each other, yes. um, and bringing that together in contentment, whatever uh, our situation is, and learning the the aspects of community, perhaps, and time, and from the the developing uh, world environment yes. but also um learning how to manage resources uh, and, and deal with faith within that context well perhaps some of the developing world could learn learn from us as well but and i think the sort of great vision um in ephesians of of this new body created through the work of jesus christ breaking down the barriers so so that all over the world christians actually are now one people one community is part of the reason why paul talks so much about how we need to share our possessions mm. yes um so, so i mean that's something that 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 we could be much better at is, yes. is actually um sharing that what we've got on the assumption that it's all one family mm. and you know you don't want your brothers and sisters in poverty when you've got too much um so i mean i think we could take all of that much more seriously rather than simply said, saying contentedly i have as much as i need you if you have as much as you need then you share it yes. with somebody who doesn't mm. Um, without the assumption that that's that the person who doesn't is, I mean, because I think the questioner is actually right. There is a Gnostic element in this, as an assumption that it's better to be um, starving and yes. and poor um, rather than healthy and um, reasonably well off. I mean, it's interesting. Paul spent a lot of his years of ministry involved in the collection Absolutely. for the yeah. starving churches of, of Judea, yeah. um, and that for him was. A direct outworking of his theology, which is that uh, people belonged, if they believe in Jesus, they belong in the same church, in the same community, and have responsibilities towards one another. Of course, it was also a quite clever ploy, um, because it was a way of saying to the Judean churches... Of course, here's some money for you. Of course, it does mean acknowledging that you have brothers and sisters who are, who are formerly Gentiles. Gentiles. Who are Gentiles. So it's a clever theological move, mm-hmm. but it's but it's an outworking of, of um, how he sees the church yes, and what he right. sees the church as right. being. And that all the gifts of all the body are to be shared. Yes. yes. So, you know, the gospel came from Judea, um, but now the Judeans need our money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just think that's such that's a right. creative way to look and at it. And I think uh, one of the things I've been involved with is... Um, 
a lot of work with small groups and what we call pastorates here at our uh, uh, here at the church uh, and the challenge for people in london where community as we rightly said is is not the easiest thing mm-hmm. um sometimes to work is this whole business of, of what does it really mean to share and what does it really mean to to provide for the needs of each other within within our groups in practical ways physical ways as well as spiritually um i think that's one of the things that practically and certainly in the, the developed world we those are one of the challenges we really need to face up to and of course we have um the lambeth conference coming up where where bishops from all and around, their spouses and their spouses <laughs> indeed from all around, uh, from all around the anglican the whole all around the world uh, will be coming so presumably jane one of your hopes would be that some of this kind of learning from one another sh- sharing of each other's lives and resources uh, might actually take place if it's not drowned out by other more media friendly issues and what would be really nice would be if people could just see what an extraordinary thing the church is there are these people from all over the world who are family and the spouses that i've got to know feel like family Mm. they really do and i and i i have been able to email somebody in burma who was on the my spouse's planning group for example uh, to check that she's still alive and that her you know what it's like in in on the outskirts of rangoon and uh, and it is quite difficult to give people any conception of how exciting it is to belong to a body Mm. where you have brothers and sisters all over the world who who really are family Yes. And and I am I slightly doubt if the if that is what the media will choose to portray about the Anglican Church meeting in Canterbury this summer, but actually that is the exciting thing. Not that we are monochrome and agree about everything, but on the contrary, that we are hugely diverse and held together only by the fact that God has called us to be together right. through the work of Jesus Christ, breaking down the barrier. That's right. One of the other things that divides us, I guess, is. Um, what we consider the Bible consists of. Um, and we got a question actually uh, recently from uh, Matt Soon on how do we treat the Apocrypha? Uh, it's quite often print, some Bibles have it and some others don't. And some have it at various points and others have it in a little section. Um, Jane, tell us, tell us what the Apocrypha is. And what, um, Jane, it, it looks like you've got a Bible there that might have the Apocrypha in it. So I perhaps you could tell us what is in the Apocrypha. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the, the Apocrypha is that group of books that you will, as Mike says, find in some Bibles between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and there are, there are some books that we're really quite familiar with and some that we're not at all familiar with. Um, and there are some wonderful stories in it. For example, one of my favourites is the story about Tobias and the angel. It's called the Book of Tobit, um, and uh, has been turned into a play and all kinds of things. So it's it's got some fabulous stories in it. Um, and if you in, if you um, after Malachi, which is the end of the official Old Testament, and before you get to Matthew, in some Bibles you'll find this group of books. Um, And in a lot of Christian churches, they are simply treated as scripture in the same way as the rest of it. So, for example, the Orthodox and the Catholic simply treat it as scripture. Mm -hmm. You'll find them printed as scripture in in all Bibles. Um, And therefore, this is a particular Protestant um, obsession about whether they're scriptural or not. Um, And uh, in the early letters that we have, in the time when, when the canon is being formed, the books that are going to be um, required reading for all Christians. For example, in the middle of the 4th century, St. Athanasius writes a letter to all his clergy saying, these are the books that we think everybody should read. And you can read these other ones. 
So he's not uh, he's not saying these other ones will do you any harm. He's just saying you don't. They're not absolutely compulsory reading. And, and the apocrypha comes into that second group, does mm. it? Some some of the books of the apocrypha come right. into that second group. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So so why did it change? Why is it that you now get some Bibles? I, 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 it's actually I think it's true. To, I think I'm right in saying that until the 18th century, every Bible printed uh, had the apocrypha in it. Uh, the the King James Bible translate the translators translated the apocrypha, um, and I think it wasn't until the Bible Society in the 18th century started printing one with just um, the ones that we tend to think of as the Bible now. Um, that, that was a new development, I think. But what, so why why what happened? Well, I, I haven't got my notes with me. This is well, something we I need th- Graham at this point because <laughs> it's a reforma- reformation. We need scholar. the reformation input. But yes. um, as I remember, um, it's partly a, a question of which language these books exist in. The, the books in the apocrypha um, are, are written um, primarily in Greek, yeah. and some of the earliest translators of the Bible, including Saint Jerome, again in the middle of the fourth century, decided that the most um, uh, authentic versions uh, of the of the Old Testament scriptures would be in Hebrew. Mm. So he went back to the Hebrew original in which these books didn't exist. Right. Um, but there was a very ancient um, <coughs> translation of the Bible called the Septuagint in Greek, the whole of the Bible in Greek, which is the one that was actually um, most widely used um, in the early Christian church. Um, which did contain these books because they were in Greek. Mm. So I think it, it, I think that it, it's it's partly a simple matter of which tradition of in, of, of translation you you go for. And the reformers, by and large, went for just just the Hebrew books of the Old Testament yep. and and cut the others out. Not that I mean, people like John Milton certainly knew their apocrypha, yeah. uh, and and Christians and previous generations knew them a lot better than we do. Handel set the story of Susanna and all sorts of other bits of Judas Maccabeus from yes. the Maccabees. Um, the Anglican Church's position is very similar to Athanasius, isn't it? That, that it, uh, it's the, the, the shorter list that is um, canonical, but the others are really worth reading and edifying, um, and you should get to know them. Uh, and and I, again, I wish I could ever remember any detail of any description, but I think part of the trouble is there are one or two tricky issues that hang on things that only occur in the Apocrypha, like praying for the dead. Yes. Yes, and I think th- we we might have given a slightly different answer to our, the first question today about <laughs> souls and bodies had we uh, referred to the the apocrypha mm. as well as to um, those which are more normally regarded as canonical. Mm. So, as as somebody who I've grown up in a good evangelical yes. uh, tradition, um, and and so I haven't really been familiar with the apocrypha. All my Bibles have not had the apocrypha in. Um, what would be if i was going to read the apocrypha um what would be some of the things to potentially that might be really beneficial uh, as i engage with the apocrypha and what might be some of the things i want to watch out for a little bit if i'm to watch out for anything would we advise anybody on that i think um all, all of it's worth reading. I mean, we read. We know bits of Ecclesiasticus as it yes. is. Um, let us now praise famous men and the fathers that begat them, mm. all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that even appears in the Anglican lectionary, Ecclesiasticus, doesn't it? It, it does. Um, but the work of wisdom uh, probably influenced Paul, and you'll pick up on allusions to it, um, possibly even corrections of it in yes. Paul, uh, if you. 
Um, if, if you've read it and if you're alert to those allusions, it will help you with your reading of the New Testament. Um, reading the story of the Maccabees will help you to understand what's going on in the New Testament because it's what happened, what, 160, 200 years before um, the time the time of the ministry of Jesus. Yes. Um, and so those, those are the kind of ways in which it will help, I think. Um, but be alert to the fact, as of course, with the Old Testament, that the New Testament, while using it and affirming it, also critiques it in, in various ways. But I think it's important for people not to be frightened of it. I mean, they're, yes. they're yeah. one, I have met people who were afraid it would corrupt their faith in some way. Yes. And so it is just important to remember that there are Christians who read this as scripture. Yes. And they are Christians. Yes. <laughs> so um, it's nothing to worry about. Luther found some phrase came to, from the Bible came to mind, which he found really helpful at a particular time, and it was really kind of God's words to him. And he wasn't sure where it came from, and he looked up and found it came from the Apocrypha and was very worried. <laughs> 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 and began, began to realize you don't need to be worried. Um, read it, uh, enjoy it, learn from it. Um, I wouldn't myself base doctrine solely upon it. Right. But obviously there are other Christians who take different perspectives on that. That's helpful. I think we're going to have to stop, um, yes. which is very sad. Mike, you need to go away and do sacraments, don't I you? I need to, need to go and do something sacramental, Participate yes. in the kingdom of God. I do, and, <laughs> and read some canonical texts at it. Um, but it's, uh, Andy, really good to have you for the first time. And, but we hope it's going to be regular. Um, well, if you'll allow me to join your esteemed company, I would love to be here on occasions. <laughs> it will be wonderful. It's been great just to uh, talk. And, and Jane, thank you very much again. It's been lovely. It's been very frightening to be without Graham. Hasn't it been is. Such a Terrifying. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> and, and probably most of it will get edited yes. out because, yes. you know, he's such a dictator. No, Graham, no truth. We shall try and get him back for next time, I think. <laughs> but from the Godpod squad, uh, it's goodbye. It's goodbye. Bye-bye. That was Godpod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.